0: So this is um, uh, our second session of the year, um, but also a first um, as it's the inaugural lecture and a new lecture series on Islam and the practice of peace sponsored by the Prince Al-Waleed bin Talal Islamic Studies program at Harvard University. Uh, so we're uh, operating tonight uh, as a collaboration uh, with that program and with the RPP We are grateful to have with us as the featured presenter uh, Professor Nathan Funk of the University of Waterloo. Uh, Welcome. Thanks for coming down. Um, And as moderator, Professor Ali Asani, uh, Professor of uh, Indo-Muslim and Islamic Religion and Culture, and Director of the Al-Waleed Program. Ali, welcome to the RPP. We're very glad to have you both. So we'd like to welcome them and extend our thanks to them, as well as to all the staff and student assistants at the Al-Waleed program, uh, uh, and also the students at Harvard Divinity School and the RPP initiative, who have done a lot of work in putting together this evening's program. So thanks to everyone who's um, uh, labored to make tonight possible. So we launched the Religions and the Practice of Peace initiative here at Harvard Divinity School last year um, to create a permanent space at Harvard University dedicated to cross-disciplinary engagement, scholarship, and practice, focusing on how individuals and communities around the world, past and present, have drawn on religious and spiritual resources to cultivate positive relationships, well-being, justice, and peace across differences. And to think about how such efforts can inform the contemporary theory and practice of conflict transformation, peace building, and leadership. Constructively, that means we're interested in in advancing exploration of how spiritual and human values, positive engagement across religions and cultures, and nonviolent approaches can help us solve some of the urgent problems we are facing locally, regionally, and globally, and to create institutions and societies more conducive to sustainable peace for everyone. Now, while it's painfully apparent that in too many contexts, as we read all the time, religion has been and continues to be used to sow divisions and incite violence, religion also has been and will continue to be a powerful resource for cultivating more compassionate, equitable, and cooperative relationships. At our present moment in history, when humanity's very survival and certainly our well-being in this 21st century hinges upon our ability to find ways to bring into being unprecedented levels of cooperation in a world in which religion remains an animating aspect of life for the great majority of people, the wisdom and experience in our spiritual traditions for how to cultivate peace and harmony, both inner and outer, Accumulated over millennia is an immense fund of knowledge to which we in the human community are all heirs and which we cannot afford to ignore um, or forget about. Yet, as I observed myself firsthand during the troubles in my native Northern Ireland, efforts for bridge building and healing, informed and empowered by religion, often take place quietly outside the spotlight of news coverage and official histories and, um, uh, and high-level political discourse. While iconic religious peace leaders such as Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Thich Nhat Hanh are widely known, the committed and courageous work of peacemaking and reconciliation undertaken, undertaken daily around the globe by millions of women and men, inspired by religious teachings, values, and virtues, too often goes unnoticed and unrecorded. And that wisdom is somehow lost to us. Fortunately, over the past couple of decades, scholars at places like the Kroc Institute at Notre Dame, Eastern Mennonite University, Georgetown's Berkeley Center, uh, Tenenbaum Center, University of Waterloo, um, have been giving these important phenomena more serious attention. Yet much more remains to be done. Here at Harvard, with our deep expertise across disciplines and schools, from theology and psychology to history and anthropology, to diplomacy and law, and our unmatched global networks and our reputation for intellectual leadership, I think we're in a strong position to advance knowledge of religious peace practices in their manifold dimensions and cultural and historical manifestations, and to investigate their implications for 21st century peace building and leadership, and to bring this crucial knowledge to leaders across sectors and the global public, what I've called zip lines from the ivory tower, not just um, talk shops, but trying to make a difference. We're therefore grateful to have as part of our working group uh, people in um, uh, in the rows in front of me, faculty, graduate students, alums, and staff, not only from Harvard Divinity School, but the Harvard Law School, the Kennedy School of Government, the School of Education, the Medical School, the Business School, the School of Design, and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. We also have colleagues from UMass Boston, uh, the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, the Hartford Seminary, American University, and experts from NGOs such as the Peace Appeal Foundation and the Carter Center. So there's quite a lot of expertise gathered in our uh, room tonight. So this year, our second year, in addition to offering this public colloquium series, a parallel course for graduate students is also being offered, and a series on spiritual formation for transformative leadership. So we're continuing to build our collaborations with partners across the university and to catalyze related initiatives and other people across Harvard uh, trying to do something of the same uh, kind of thing. One of the new initiatives that we're most excited about, apropos of this evening, is the groundbreaking lecture series on Islam and the practice of peace that actually begins here tonight, sponsored by the al walid Islamic Studies Program here at Harvard. Like the al walid Conference on Intra-Muslim Relations, um, on which RPP collaborated last year, this new lecture series brings welcome attention to vital contemporary issues. It promises to illuminate aspects of the Islamic tradition and its multifaceted legacies of peace practice and pedagogy that have so much to contribute to our contemporary global conversation and shared human quest for sustainable peace. So before we get started um, a a brief note about the format of these colloquium sessions Which are integrated with the parallel graduate course so we will start off with the presentation by our guest speaker and then follow that with a with a period of moderated discussion between the speaker and the RPP working group the graduate students a fabulous and diverse group bringing a remarkable breadth of experiences and talent from across the university, have prepared for this evening by doing readings assigned by Professor Funk, and will kick off the working group's discussion. In the third and final part of the program, we'll open up the conversation to the rest of the audience, to all of us, recognizing that many of you joining us here tonight come with great interest, and in some cases with substantial experience and expertise on this topic. So with that, I'd like to invite uh, my friend, colleague, uh, uh, Professor Asani, director of the Alwaleed program at Harvard, to say a few words about the Alwaleed program's vision for this new lecture series and guide us through the rest of the program. Professor Asani, thank you so much.
1: Uh, Well, good evening, everyone. and since this is a, uh, 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 a session on peacemaking, I should also use the traditional Islamic greeting, "Salam alaikum," peace be upon you. Um, so, um, uh, the Al Walid program, the Al Walid Islamic Studies program, is a is a, is a program that dates back to I would say two thousand six, um, and it's uh, one of its goals is to promote. Uh, informed uh, and balanced uh, uh, education about Islam, not only just on campus, but also uh, through outreach uh, activities. So we are engaged at many different levels. Uh, we have a faculty seminar series. We have a uh, graduate seminar series. We collaborate with the South Asia Institute for Islam and South Asia series the Center for African Studies for Islam in Africa, the Center for Asian, uh, the uh, Asia Center for uh, Lectures on Islam in Indonesia. Part of it is trying to think about Islam in a global way. Um, and then also we are particularly interested in fostering activities about Islam uh, and the interaction of religion, literature, and the arts in Muslim societies. And where, because we found that um, most people uh, uh, experience religion through the arts, and the arts have not been taken seriously as a form of knowledge, Uh, at least in the academy. The arts are always seen as extracurricular or co-curricular, but we're trying to say, no, the arts should actually be curricular and part of the way we not only teach, but also the way we learn. And it's really within that context where we, uh, uh, as we are exploring the different ways in which we can do outreach work at the university, across the university, all all the faculties, our steering committee is made up, in fact, of faculty members from all the graduate schools at Harvard. So it's an uh, intra-faculty initiative. so we get a lot of advice from different uh, people, and in that context, we're really delighted to be able to have this series here uh, in collaboration with the Divinity School and the religions and the and the practice of peace. Um, I think the case for having a special uh, series on just Islam and peacemaking uh, is obvious. I think to many people, you just see the news and or you see about Islam and violence. And there are certain issues that I think are uh, shaping media coverage about Islam. Uh, One of the issues that I find that as a faculty member, I try to distinguish between uh, loud Islam, and that's the Islam connected with power, which tends to get attention in the media. And then there is the silent Islam, or the silenced Islam, uh, which is the Islam of faith, uh, not really connected with power, but the Islam of faith, uh, thinking about uh, ethics and morality and so on. And I call it silent or silenced because nobody talks about it. Sometimes the practitioners themselves don't talk about it because it's seen as egotistical to talk about it. It goes against the faith tradition. But also, they're silenced because uh, very few people know about this. As a result, when we talk about Islam, it's the loud Islam that catches the media attention, that is shaping perspectives on Islam, and the silent or the silenced Islam uh, is the one that's being totally ignored. And so part of this initiative is actually to highlight those voices, because especially in, uh, in the current times that we live in, those voices that exist, they really do exist on the ground. Uh, uh, they're uh, Muslims engaged in peacemaking, as you will hear, uh, but we never hear about them. And so part of the series is to highlight that that very important role, um, and, uh, and hopefully um, uh, become a, a resource, not just for the university, but we're also hoping for Muslim communities themselves uh, because they themselves, many Muslims, are not aware of these resources within their traditions. So it's an educational event, not, uh, not just for non-Muslims, but I think also for uh, Muslims to talk about the diversity uh, and, the, and the wealth of resources within the tradition itself. So there have been um, uh, traditional conflict and transformation methods in Muslim societies, uh, spiritual dimensions of peace building, there's been the role of virtue cultivation in Muslim societies, um, visions for just institutions, social justice, uh, arts and culture as ways of building bridges and understanding, uh, Sufi traditions and practices. So there are a variety of things that we can actually talk about, and we are hoping that this lecture series will cover some of these different dimensions. So um, I'm going to turn now to um, uh, introduce our speaker, who we are absolutely delighted uh, that he could come when we were first thinking about who to invite his name emerged uh, as a clear leader and the person we should bring because of his, uh, his breadth uh, and depth of study uh, of this particular sub- subject. Uh, So, Professor Nathan Funk is Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at University of Waterloo in Canada. He earned his PhD in International Relations from the American University of International Service in Washington DC with a concentration in International Peace and Conflict Resolution and Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, Before commencing his doctorate at the American University, He completed a BA in Global Community Studies at Gustavus Adolphus College uh, in uh, St. Peter in Minnesota in 1994. During his graduate studies, he studied Arabic in Damascus, Syria, uh, at the time when, of course, things were very good in Damascus. uh, Conducted field research on track two diplomacy in Middle East and Cyprus worked on research and training projects for the United States Institute of Peace, including a project with Lebanese-American scholar George uh, Irani on Sult, the traditional Islamic ritual of reconciliation, and collaborated with American University Professor Abdulaziz Saeed to design new courses on Islamic peace paradigms and Islamic sources of conflict resolution. These course design projects led to a co-edited book uh, entitled "Peace and Conflict Resolution in Islam: uh, Precept and Practice," that was published in 2001. Before taking up, prior to taking up visiting professor positions in international relations at American University and George Washington University, he returned to Damascus and working, began working on a book. Islam and Peacemaking in the Middle East, uh, again collaborating with Abdulaziz Saeed. In 2004, responding to a deep rift between American and Arab societies, he edited a book entitled uh, Amin Rihani, Amin Rihani, Bridging East and West, exploring the literary output, political thought, intercultural outlook and legacy of one of the first Arab American writers. Since 2004, Professor Funk has been teaching undergraduates as well as graduate students at the University of Waterloo's Conrad Grable University College. In addition to the Islam and Peacemaking book, he has continued to write on Islamic peace paradigms, Islamic Western relations, and the role of cultural and religious factors in peace building. Recent book chapters and articles include Religion and Peace and Conflict Studies, Islam and Peace and Conflict Studies, and Building on What's Already There, Valuing Local and in International Peace Building. He has served on the boards of two Canadian NGOs, Project Plowshares and Peace Build, participated in North American and Iran dialogue projects and acted as the founder and lead researcher of his college's center for the study of religion and peace from 2010 to 2014. So you can see we have with us, we are really honored and privileged to have somebody with such extensive experience and thought uh, delivering uh, this inaugural lecture. Which, by the way, for those of you who are not aware of it, uh, the word Islam has inbuilt within it uh, the notion of peace. It's sort of unique among world religions that it has peace inbuilt into its very name. Uh, But of course, it's ironic that it's come in the popular mind to be associated with violence. But that's the world in which we live. So in any case, uh, I want to welcome Professor Funk for uh, giving the talk. Thank you.
2: Uh, Thank you, Dr. Asani, for that very in-depth introduction. I'm very impressed by the energy here the committed volunteers, <clears throat> and the ability to generate turnout. <clears throat> I've attempted to organize my f- fair share of events in the last several years, and, and I'm happy to get a, a few dozen. But this is, this is really rather remarkable. And usually the crowd is, is, is mostly gray. But uh, I like to see the, the, the different, different ages, the different representation you have here. I feel very honored to be with you uh, this evening. Uh, as a speaker in a a series of events that present what is, in my judgment, uh, a a visionary model for engaging uh, issues of religion, conflict, and peace. I'm inspired by the way the uh, Religions and the Practice of Peace Initiative seeks to build functional bridges uh, across so many divides. Divides among disciplines, bridges. It tries to bridge the divides among disciplines, tries to build bridges between academy and society. I like that idea of zip lines from the ivory tower. Uh, Bridges between theory and practice among different religious traditions, as well as between secular and religious approaches to peace practice. So it's a very integrative approach. And it powerfully uh, reframes our thinking about religion and its potential as a source of motivation and wisdom for peace ready to be tapped in a context in which we recognize that learning happens best when we see that we all can be resources for one another. Uh, Each point of entry to the conversation contains valuable insights for the learning process of everyone involved. Now this integrative and dialogical approach, it transcends the limitations of many alternative approaches to the subject. So I heartily applaud it. And I also feel very privileged to be part of uh, the uh, launch of the new lecture series on Islam and the Practice of Peace, co-sponsored by the Prince Al-Walid bin Talal Islamic Studies program and the RPP initiative. And when I reviewed the goals of the Al-Walid Islamic Studies program online, I was again inspired by the commitments to interdisciplinarity and cross-cultural understanding within the Islamic world as well as uh, between Islamic and Western societies. Now, these themes of bridge building and of seeking an encompassing multifaceted understanding are very much at the center of my presentation this evening, uh, which is entitled Making Peace with Islam Islamic Approaches to Peacemaking. And let me shift now to PowerPoint. Like the RPP initiative and the um, Awalid Islamic Studies program, I aspire to situate my own work within a broadly uh, comparative context. So let me share with you as a point of departure some of my own working assumptions about the study of religion and the practice of peace. So I'll begin with some um, longstanding debates and conversations within the field of religious studies, where there where one of the more profound divides is between the so-called insider and outsider perspectives. That is, between scholarly approaches that aspire to remain anchored in the commitments of, the practi- of practitioners and those that seek to produce a more detached form of analysis. There are many who would regard these two approaches to the study of religion as fundamentally incompatible and go so far as to invalidate the other for either failing to understand religion or for failing to seek academic objectivity. My own judgment, however, is that these approaches are based on different kinds of questions and different epistemologies. In my research, which, like the RPP initiative, seeks both academic value and the practical relevance, I found that there's much that's valuable in each of these two general approaches. So I attempt to apply what I call a dual or compound perspective that draws on both sources of vision. So I'd like to draw a parallel to the field of optics with a bow to the 11th century scholar and scientist Ibn al-Haytham, a pioneer of optics. And I'd like to suggest that it's possible to aspire toward both a view from within and a view from without, and to toggle back and forth between these two perspectives. The result is analogous to binocular vision, which we know from theorists of optics grants many living creatures with a broader field of vision and also greater depth perception. So to make contributions to the field of religious peace building, we need to try to understand what peace means to the committed practitioners of each religion. We also need to empathize with the idea of seeking the living essence of a tradition and to bring that tradition alive in situations of conflict. But we can also benefit from, other types of attempts to have an encompassing scholarly overview, taking into account all the contingencies and reversals of history, to confront the complexity and multiplicity, and to resist being boxed into even well-intentioned essentialisms. Now, In addition to optics, I also like to draw on the thinking uh, from the field of anthropology, where many would recognize a compatibility or complementarity of what are called emic and etic forms of inquiry. Emic inquiry being classic ethnography, where you're practicing thick description, and you're trying to find all the particular terms and and concepts that organize a worldview, and to translate those in a way that conveys the wholeness and and uniqueness of that worldview. An etic perspective is more theoretical, comparative, seeking generalizations and and, and contrasts among cultures. I think both of those types of thinking about religion and peace are valuable, and I try to bring them into play when I investigate Islamic approaches to peacemaking. And when we apply this particularly to the idea of religion and peace, we can see that those, those two lenses help to draw out different things. So that dual or compound perspective helps us to see the particularity and holism that's present within you know, each religion's understanding of peace. You know, we, we often you know we are often dissatisfied when we talk about religion and peace, and we, we, we stay at the level of, of, of kind of thin generalizations. all world religions value peace, which is true right? but we are often much more satisfied when we're able to, to delve into the specificity of each understanding of peace, to understand how each religion conveys through its idea of peace a unique synthesis or integration of values, uh, a unique set of meanings that's, that's resonating with other world religions' understandings of peace, but also has its own distinctive ambiance, its own sound quality. So I like this idea of keynote themes. To investigate world religions, and, and specifically Islam is where I've done most of my work, in relation to this idea of, of a religion conveying certain keynote themes that are, 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 are distinctive, that convey something of the, the core principles of that message And if we look at other world religions, we find strong resonances, but also distinctions in the different elements of peace that are brought out. So I have a a series of terms from other regions of the world, and some more an inward equanimity, others more an emphasis on on right relationship. Each of these terms has a richness that's not entirely reducible to a common denominator. So that is where the etic lens, right, insider-type views, can be beneficial to us. At the same time, it's very valuable to have comparative frames of reference that point out that the dilemmas within any one religious tradition with respect to conflict and peace are often quite similar to what have been encountered by other groups of people living in different parts of the world. And so we, if we look at any particular religion, and we, and we look at how the same underlying idea of peace gets inflected in different ways, in different circumstances, and applied in all sorts of different manners, Uh, the way in which internal debates develop within a tradition, we can see that each religion uh, has its own historically rooted differences in interpretation and practice. It has its own spectrum of thought on war and peace. And I'm going to explore with you tonight the idea of paradigms within Islam uh, as a a heuristic tool. Not that most uh, individuals would feel uh, comfortable being entirely boxed with any one of these paradigms. We'll look and see if these paradigms help to illuminate some patterns. I have at the bottom of the screen here, uh, as a metaphor, a spectrum of light. Uh, And this is in reference to, again, thinking comparatively. You know the Christian tradition of reflection on themes like just war and pacifism, uh, among other possible positions. And you see there a, a bust of Constantine on on one side, you know, and you see a, 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 toward the other end of the continuum, a member of a group called Christian Peacemaker Teams who is rather defiantly but uh, not relatively also not non-aggressively confronting a tank with his arms outspread both for coming from within the tradition tradition, grounded in a long history of reflection and thought, all right, uh, or have produced long uh, histories of thought. Constantine uh, himself re- signifies a, um, a shift in, um, among many in discussion of Christianity's relation to the state, uh, but many different possibilities within a singular religious tradition. in addition to these matters of academic framing you know what what is the je- approach how how can the emic and etic lenses assist us it's important also to situate the discussion of islam and peace within another binary that also consciously or unconsciously colors much of our thinking on the subject <clears throat> if you do a quick google search on islam and peace or even on religion and peace you'll find that perceptions of the subject vary profoundly in accordance with geography. And that in the English language internet sphere, there is profound skepticism, indeed much hostility, toward the notion that Islam has something of value to contribute to conversations about the practice of peace. Much of the content you'll find immediately with an image search is deeply ugly, presenting a stereotype that almost invites the targeted group to to demonstrate or enact it. My own research is motivated in no small part by a desire to challenge such representations and the negative dynamics with which they are associated. Now, as much as I dislike the Islam in the West binary, it is one of those frames of reference that by its very nature has the potential to enlarge and distort the differences it purports to explain. It's important to recognize that North American images or experiences of Islam are formed in the context of of conflict, if we accept, at least provisionally, that Islamic and Western identity constructions are part of the world we inhabit, we see some profound differences in basic assumptions within each of these spheres. While each side sees its peaceful character as self-evident and in little need of elaboration, the other side willfully or not does not see it. We find ourselves in a world in which hostile mirror image essentialisms mediate macrocultural perceptions of the other. In one of the readings I offered to the colloquium, I suggested that we're living in between stories. Recent decades have seen a profound strengthening of narratives about clashing cultures. These narratives are, as Dr. Asani put it, you know, highly selective. We, we get the, the loud voices, but not the, those that are not being amplified, <clears throat> the voices of faith. But the narratives also, they reflect an aspect of our experience that's real and damaging. So the study of Islamic approaches to the practice of peace has the potential to help, I would suggest, reopen our narrative imagination, to see parts of the historical experience we were not previously narrating, and to open us to new stories and possibilities. So let us now explore Islamic understandings of peace, first with a spotlight on central tendencies or keynote themes. Afterwards, I'll shift to internal diversity and differences in paradigms. And I just want to underscore that as I explore these these themes with you, uh, I, I do not in any way claim to have the last word on the subject. There is a passage in the Quran that provides interesting you know, metaphor for what I'm trying to say here, which is the idea that if all of the world's forests were pens and all of the oceans were ink, the word still would not be exhausted. There's much more to say on this subject. If we look uh, at at the core meaning of Islam, we'll find that, as Dr. Asani mentioned, the religion's name, it's not derived from the name of a a particular prophet or people, but it has a a direct connection to a concept of peace. Uh, The the words Islam and peace in Arabic share a common verbal root. The uh, linguistic meaning of Islam in Arabic is surrender or submission to God, and it comes from the verbal root salima, which means to be safe, secure, free from any evil or affliction. Islam is thereby related to salam, peace, and Muslim, one who has surrendered to God. By implication, this means that being Muslim is about seeking safety, security, and peace through surrender of the personal will to the will of God. It should come as no surprise then that in Islamic thought, peace is understood to be a condition that depends in no small part on people individually and collectively, placing revealed guidance above egocentric sources of motivation, and actively working to do God's will. Let us trace some ways in which peace enters into Islamic scripture, thought, and social experience. First, scripturally, we find that peace is one of God's 99 most uh, beautiful names. There's a, uh, the idea of God having many, many beautiful names present in the Quran. You know, 99; those that are best known. Uh, Salam is number five in that list of 99 names. It is the greeting, language, and condition of paradise, the state of the spiritually refined soul. A desired, also a desired state of affairs among human beings, founded on a just and harmonious. Ordering of relationships. It doesn't need much repeating, but I I will mention it to repeat what you've already heard this evening. The the common greeting, of course, among Muslims, Assalamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, to which the response is, And upon you be peace, wa Alaikum Assalam. And this is uh, understood as an expression of goodwill, also a reassurance of, uh, of safety. Now, if we look at the many dimensions of Islamic thought on the subject, we we see peace associated with uh, spiritual integrity. A person who is a peaceful person is one whom you do not need to fear, from whom you do not fear any harm. Uh, They have a condition of spiritual integrity. There is also in the idea of peace uh, uh, the notion of of existential security. Uh, Security uh, goes beyond the affairs of this world. There is also the idea of a state of equilibrium, balance, harmony of the soul. And when we talk on the more mundane level, to talk about a peaceful society, we have to talk in Islamic context about a just society, a society in which there is social justice, in which there is effort to follow inspired norms, ideas of revealed guidance central to Islamic theological discussions of the matter, and then as a correlate to that, active efforts to do God's will. And I I will be putting up. in a number of slides, references to the Quran. These are are just examples of of many possible points of reference. One of them there, God calls unto the abode of peace. Another one, peace, a word from a most merciful Lord. So peace in an Islamic context is the the norm. It's a norm-setting value. Well, there's much skepticism. Within Islamic contexts of an idea of, of unconditional or absolute pacifism, there is broad acceptance of the idea that peace is the preferred condition in human life. And this position is scripturally grounded as the displayed passages suggest. First, the idea that if someone kills another person as if they'd murdered all of humanity, or saved or given life to a person, it's as if you've given life to, to, to humanity. That resonates with some other sayings we find in the larger Abrahamic context, underscoring the broad principle of the value of life. The second citation there, let not the enmity of a people incite you to act otherwise than with justice be always just, that is nearer to righteousness, and fear God. All right. So do not let your own actions be determined by what others do. An important uh, principle, you know, in, in peace and conflict studies, we focus on understanding cycles of escalation, the, uh, retaliation, how how actions, even in you know, in asymmetrical situations, serve to reinforce dynamics of confrontation. Here's a principle that says: be careful not to let yourself be defined by your adversaries' behavior. <clears throat> Thirdly. But if the enemy inclines toward peace, do thou also incline towards peace and trust in God, for he hears and knows all things. And some commentators like to point out that the word here is inclines. It doesn't say that your enemy has necessarily even chosen peace wholeheartedly yet. But it means is inclining, has the potential to go there. So give it a chance, a clear message there. Finally, I have a hadith on the screen here. Whenever violence enters into something, it disgraces it, and whenever kindness enters into something, it graces it. Reinforcing the idea that uh, at the core of, of the Islamic message, as you know, you'll find at the start of each surah in the Quran, is the idea that God is merc- the merciful, the compassionate. And that's what the, the calligraphy there represents, that of God is Ar rahman Ar rahim Now, if we try to, to say, well, you know, what, what is distinctive about Islamic peace concepts? trying to, again, to take the, this view from within. All right. uh, what are some, some keynote themes? You know, what stands out when we, when we think of Islamic voices at the peace table next to voices from other religious traditions? What, what are some themes that may not be unique to Islam, but which are maybe unique in their combination of elements? I would say that, that, that some of the, the distinctives, again, not, not necessarily uniquenesses, but uniqueness in combination. You know, uh, strong priority on social justice and human solidarity. And uh, across from that left-hand point, you see a couple of verses that that reinforce the message. Repel evil with with what is better. Stand out firmly for justice, even if it is against yourselves, your parents, or your kin. Strong justice messages. What's often not as well known is that there are also uh, strong warrants within uh, Islam for what's being called in in my field, restorative justice or reparative ideas of justice. The Quran does not negate the idea of punishment as a valid response to crime or offenses, uh, but it also holds out an ideal of magnanimity, uh, that it is better to forgive, that there are spiritual rewards for forgiving, especially in circumstances where someone has ex- been willing to accept responsibility, Uh, for wrongdoing when there is a chance for for moral uh, learning and gain. And there are elaborate rituals of reconciliation that have been practiced throughout the Islamic world which try to take principles from the Quran and how you achieve reconciliation, how you manage to get someone who has committed wrongdoing or whose family member has caused violence to a member of another family to accept responsibility, and then how, how you then try to work with an offended group to achieve forgiveness and social reconciliation. <clears throat> Another theme that's worth emphasizing is that in Islamic context, there are very, excuse me, in Islamic texts, particularly here the Quran, there are inclusive and pluralistic statements that are quite clearly articulated as well as the concept of people of the book. People of the book applied uh, directly to Jews, Christians, and Sabians, but is also a concept that has been applied in other parts of the world in South Asia to provide a basis for coexistence with other religious communities. You'll find statements about how every human community has received messengers and guidance, which provides Much food for thought uh, that has been explored, debated within Islamic context, but it provides a basis for a paradigm of universalism, which I will come to later. So now I'm going to uh, explore the diversity. What does this really mean uh, in practice? How do textual arguments? themes, scriptural passages relate to what people do when we talk about conflict and peace. In my work with Abdulaziz Said at American University, who only recently retired, he had been teaching since, it was 1957, up until this last year, he finally retired at the ripe age of about uh, 85. Uh, But together, we worked to map out five different paradigms in a way of illustrating some patterns and possibilities. So these, these are the five. And we don't conceive of them as watertight or uh, not overlapping in any way. They, in fact, can be found often in, to various extents together. <clears throat> and I'm going to start here because you know every religious tradition uh, of, of, of sufficient scale uh, to have states in which members of that religious tradition were the majority has a history of religious leaders and institutions interfacing with political power. And various compromises and mutual accommodations are made. And you find this in Islam as you find it in other religious traditions. So it's important to acknowledge that in Islam, as in other world religions, you do find paradigms, a a paradigm or or a way way of um, practicing religion in the public sphere. In which religion becomes used often as a language for legitimating politics and power of leaders, authority, and is uh, articulated in ways that are seen as, as, as good for social order. And if you read Ibn Khaldun, the you know the great historian and thinker uh, <coughs> about world history, the rise and fall of civilizations, who from centuries ago still cited people like Toynbee, quote him as one of the great world's great historians. Or, He says very explicitly, you know, religion is important for social and political order. There you will find many instances where in this political context, uh, Islam, like uh, other religions, can be invoked in relation particularly to uh, hierarchical aspects of the worldview, uh, emphasizing intercommunal competition, competition between different communities of uh, of faith, uh, worldly rivalries, the need for unity in the face of dissension. You can find these patterns. Uh, And peace in this context, it still retains the existential and uh, spiritual dimensions. But when we talk about events in the world, peace is often reduced more to an absence of war or violent disorder. There's a word in Arabic called fitna, Uh, which also occurs in the Quran, which in the Islamic intellectual tradition was associated with people driven by their passions and ending up in destructive conflicts. Uh, And to preserve order, there have been many injunctions against engaging in fitna, against engaging in discord, even if it means putting up with certain injustices and undesirable arrangements. Uh, This is a good occasion to, to, to unpack some of the many dimensions of the term jihad, because it does apply even if if this paradigm by no means exhausts the multiple layers uh, that you find in the word word jihad, let's let's examine the concept. The core meaning, of course, of of jihad is striving or struggling to live by Islamic precepts, and this applies to Muslim religious life in a comprehensive and holistic sense striving to do God's will. And this can take place in in, in many domains of life. And on the right-hand side of this uh, figure, under many forms, we see that that, that there is a spiritual dimension in Islamic tradition to jihad, which is seen as as, as very essential uh, to purify the self, the nafs, uh, to try to transcend ego. More broadly, trying to be a good and virtuous person, to follow uh, teachings, principles, and norms that that represent virtue and the good life, efforts to support social welfare, uh, to confront injustice. And then this last meaning, which is what gets voiced the most loudly, fighting. Traditionally, or most generally understood to be defense against attack or attempting to end persecution. Uh, in, in traditional Islamic thought, there is a, a hadith that is often invoked, uh, underlining a distinction between what is known as the greater jihad and the lesser jihad. And there, there's this, basically the, the, the narrative says that the, the, the Prophet Muhammad <clears throat> and his pe- people have returned from an actual outer fight to back to Medina, uh, and the, the statement is made that we've returned from the lesser jihad to the greater jihad. The, the outer stuff, uh, fighting to defend ourselves or to, to prevent ourselves from being overrun, is of much l- lesser importance right, than the inner spiritual struggle. And that was, through, in traditional Islamic jurisprudence and thought, still up- recognized as the deeper end, even though much thought in jurisprudence had to do with <clears throat> issues of the relations of the Muslim state to other states in the world, which included thinking about war and peace, and yes, also some justifications for fighting. <clears throat> and I just want to, to, to um, put in front of you some, some Quranic passages concerning justifications for fighting. There, there are more. There are others. Right? But these are, I think, quite representative of the types of rationales for fighting that you find within the Islamic tradition. And often, there, there is, uh, I think, a a distortion of these rationales, or, or an attempt to represent Islam as exceptional in, in, in a negative way, as, as basically different from uh, the sort of moral arguments that are made in the West or in other religious contexts. And I would like to, to say this, it's, that's a, not a, a fair characterization. If you look at these passages, they suggest that <clears throat> it can be righteous to, stand, to fight to deliver people from oppression. To, to engage in self-defense but not aggression. And then this idea that even the, 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 the sacred spaces or places are defenseless unless somebody stands up for them. Those are the common types of arguments that are made about fighting in the scriptural sources. And you'll find that then there's just the theme of defense is, is central, as well as some other themes that I think actually are, are not so, so dissimilar to contemporary, even liberal um, conversations about humanitarian intervention, and uh, perhaps even a resonance with notions of preemptive war <laughs> can, be, can be found uh, not so dissimilar from types of arguments that you find in a contemporary Western context. So I, I, here, here is this, uh, an effort to map out, if you want to map a, a continuum within Islam on <clears throat> ethics of war and peace, At one end here I have extremism, which uh, involves reacting to violence with minimal discrimination. That's not what I'm talking about with this paradigm here. It is uh, a non-mainstream position, although it is one that I'm sure we'll be talking about in question and answer period, because it it exists. Uh, It's important to recognize what is mainstream, and certain aspects of this peace through coercion paradigm have influence on public debates, as well as broader ideas about Islam fundamentally, about justice, about righteous society, about fairness. And even standing, being steadfast in the face of oppression without committing violence, those can be fairly mainstream positions. You'll also find a contemplative quietist position in the Islamic experience, sometimes associated with the Sufi tradition. And with certain strains of, of Shia thought, right, that is also present in the historical conversations. And just very briefly for comparison, here's a Christian con- continuum uh, developed by a former colleague of mine at the University of Waterloo, uh, in which he similarly has an outlier position, crusade, or, uh, which, which lines up pretty well with the extremist position, uh, as well as more mainstream ideas about just war, limited or selective pacifism, activist pacifism, non-resistance. So what is another paradigm? <clears throat> uh, we have, have proposed, uh, Dr. Said and I in, in our writings, uh, an additional, a second paradigm, which we call peace through equity which represents embodiment of contemporary Muslim aspirations to give life to ideas of a more just, inclusive, and humane order within as well as beyond the confines of presently constituted states. So here we see a paradigm which aspires to uh, more authentically and fully represent Islamic values and the peace through coercion paradigm. Uh, going back to that first paradigm, you know, much, much of the disillusion you have with existing states in the Middle East, other parts of the Islamic world today, is that the uh, religious establishments quite often are, are very willing to find reasons to support whatever the, the governing policy of the day is. Too close to political power, too easily manipulated and, and the strong desire to have, have justice upheld against corruption, uh, against you know, caving to external demands, uh, desire to see globalization move in different ways, but you also find uh, within this uh, voices who are appealing for positive engagement with ideas of just and accountable governance with, with human rights, uh, with ecological concerns, and to move beyond the statist paradigm. So there are voices calling for profound reforms within and beyond Muslim-majority societies and efforts to assert compatibility of Islam with with the emerging international norms. And I have here two more names of God on this, from the 99 names on this slide, al muksit the equitable one, and al-Adil, the just. So again, themes that receive emphasis and that are very much the subject of some of the readings I shared with you, efforts to try to bring out core teachings in a more real way. If we have time during our question and answer, we may wish to to consider different interpretive modes and moods within Islam today, traditionalism, reformism, and revivalism. Uh, The uh, uh, questions of religious authority are very much Contested in the present era more so than in the past. Uh, historically, you have the development of, of very authoritative schools of, of law, uh, of jurisprudence, scholarship of, of hadith and traditions. And increasingly, with you know, the spread of literacy, with more and more educated people, you have academically based Muslims, you have people who were not trained in a madrasa, but who who have Islamic learning, who are challenging uh, themes from religious institutions. You have revivalists who who challenge some of the, who who want to see Islamic norms more fully realized within their societies, and against encroachment of external norms from outside. You have reformists who are are, are asking the universalizing questions, how do we relate to to the the contemporary context in ways that are innovative and life-giving. These are interplaying with one another. But within this peace through equity uh, paradigm, we've understood it to, to particularly provide a framework in which concerns for social justice that are widely shared by those who critique some of the inertia of the traditional system are finding expression. A third paradigm, peace through conciliation, Here, we encounter uh, real practices that you can find in this diverse context as Afghanistan, Turkey, Syria, rural Lebanon, Jordan, many other settings, Africa, practice at the community level to deal with disputes, uh, disagreements, incidents of violence or harm that transpire. I think snooze is the right <laughs> right thing to press. <clears throat> and you have, have centuries of experience of trying to translate Quranic norms, prophetic hadiths about how to achieve reconciliation between people into practice. Uh, it's a, a very fascinating subject, and, and, and one that, that is uh, Uh, demonstrates the existence of of resources on the ground that could be related to broader contemporary ambitions uh, for peace building or questions of transitional justice. Transitional justice is is the question of how how do you deal with serious human rights abuses, with political transitions from dictatorship to greater democracy? How do do you deal with the wrongs of the past? Well at the micro level, at the community level, there's a long history of trying to to uphold simultaneously moral responsibility for wrongdoing, forgiveness, magnanimity, reparation to those who are aggrieved, and community involvement. And there are, again, these living traditions called tzuh, uh, and mustalaha, which have to do with the idea of reconciliation. And what, these practices, what do they look like? You know, the a the, the sort of a, a, a general example might be a situation where there, maybe perhaps there is an instance of there's a murder or a grave injury con- committed between two individuals in a community that perhaps is more rural, uh, not in, in, in a major urban center. And traditionally, this wrongdoing was not viewed as a purely individual manner. It's between families, between social groups. And the, the incidence of harm or violence can provoke retaliation, retribution, because the extended family functioned as a sort of collective security system. Right? And the avoiding a blood feud was viewed as a very high priority for the community, such that elders within the community would develop a reputation for wisdom in dealing with these sorts of grave disputes and would become go-to persons to try to conciliate between families that have been put at odds by this sort of an an incident. And so what you'd often have is the family of someone who committed a wrongdoing would go to the elders in in that community, ask for their help very humbly, say, please help us, so and so did wrong. We need your support uh, in trying to broker a ceasefire (laughs) to to have a truce. So that there will be no retaliation, and then shuttle diplomacy. We would have a committee developed called the Jaha. This is in the Arab Islamic context a group of elders who have status, and go back and forth between the two families, try to reach a settlement, get acceptance of responsibility from the family of the offender, and willingness to forgive from the family of the the aggrieved. <clears throat> Ultimately, you arrive at a formula for reparations and a public ritual, which could be a suspenseful affair when no one is sure exactly if this settlement's going to stick. Will there be revenge? Will, will, it, will it work? And you, the the elders would their, their status uh, commands respect from the community. Are present. They accompany both families. Reparations are offered, sometimes refused as a matter of magnanimity. It elevates the status of the aggrieved um, family. Uh, followed by a, a further ritual, such as uh, the family of the victim serves bitter coffee at their home to the family of the, the, victim, the, of the victimizer then the family of the one who offended has to offer a public feast to the whole community. The the reputation of both families is restored, uh, amends are made, and strong Islamic uh, principles invoked at multiple points during this process. Fourth paradigm, nonviolence. How are we doing on time? Okay, moving towards... What of nonviolence in Islam? There are many, both within and outside Islam, who do not see this as the most likely Islamic paradigm. And yet there are cohesive voices arguing for just such a paradigm and pointing to many examples in which Muslims have engaged quite deliberately in restrained, purposeful, nonviolent action in the pursuit of justice. And what do they draw upon within Islam in making this argument? Well, Islamic precepts favor collective solidarity in the face of injustice. There are are, are strong words in the Quran about injustice, but also strong words encouraging uh, patience, a moral restraint, uh, not responding impulsively to one who is ignorant, and preservation of human life. And there are many precedents we can point to where nonviolent action has been embraced as a strongly preferred alternative to passivity on the one hand and destructive violence on the other. Advocates of nonviolence within Islam like to point out that during the first 12 years of the Islamic community, that they were oppressed in the city of Mecca. And Quranic passages from the Meccan period strongly uh, argue against. Impulsively reacting to ignorant statements, to defamation, to oppression, uh, and at the same time being steadfast in one's own beliefs. There are further arguments that are made on nonviolence by some contemporary scholars and activists. One of them is a, 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 a Thai Muslim named Chaiwa Sapa Anand, also known as Khadr Muhayyadeen. Uh, he's a uh, articulated what could be seen as, a, as sometimes referred to as a just war pacifism, which means basically that, yes, Islam provides a framework that, that, that for engaging in fighting, if absolutely necessary, with strict restraints, uh, with protection of the lives of innocents, noncombatants. Right? But in the modern world, the nature of contemporary weaponry, the nature of contemporary conflicts makes these principles increasingly hard to apply with any rigor. With various forms of explosives, deadly weapons. And so he says the morally preferred struggle then is the nonviolent one. And jihad against structural violence is one of the imperatives of contemporary uh, Muslim life. And he, I, I've heard him, him speak on this subject before. He says, I get bored with people talking about Islam and peace. I want to know how to fight without violence. And that's what I try to train people for. And he was involved in training Indonesian students uh, in, the, in the, the, the mid to late 90s in nonviolent protest, principles that were applied during that period, and also is very much engaged with the Civil War in Thailand, trying to provide insurgents. He moves back and forth between insurgents and government when he can, trying to provide people with tools, another way of fighting that has been demonstrated in many contexts to generate better outcomes for humanity than uh, guerrilla warfare. <clears throat> And he says that the collective disciplines of Islam have strong nonviolent potential. And he takes the five pillars of Islam and relates them to practices of nonviolent struggle. So Ideas of witness against injustice, ritual prayer develops the community solidarity. Giving alms, that that pillar of Islam, underscores responsibility to the poor. Fasting, to have fasting, you need self-discipline. To do nonviolence, you need willpower and self-discipline. Pilgrimage, the idea of, of. Fostering unity among people that transcends race, clash, nationality, that should be part of how Muslims position themselves against injustice in the world. <clears throat> uh, one uh, remarkable nonviolent leader within the Islamic context who is often overlooked, Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who was a Pashtun social reformer and independence movement leader, who started a movement called the Khudai Khidmatgars, the Servants of God Army, where, where uh, he, at one time, is estimated to have had a standing non-violent army uniformed of 100,000 members, right, at its peak. This was during the context of the, the Indian independence movement, but his own movement started autonomously, uh, fostering social reform, building schools for boys and girls, uh, uh, committing him, themselves to edu- people committing themselves to education and social uplift. Uh, He was a remarkable uh, individual who stood, I believe it was approximately six and a half feet tall. There are pictures of him towering over his contemporaries, but a rather commanding figure who should not be overlooked in his own contributions to nonviolence. And he drew upon uh, the Islamic context in articulating his own values and reasons that nonviolence provided another way of fighting. Final paradigm, peace through universalism. Here we are talking about resources within Islam that articulate a a vision of the world defined by unity and coexistence. And it can be pointed out that that within the Quran, there are these remarkable universalistic passages. Uh, I have one of them there. It's probably difficult for those of you in back to read, but pertains to the idea that salvation is potentially to open to other believers than just just the Muslim community in itself. Uh, Those who believe in the last day, work righteousness, they have their reward, and on them shall be no fear, uh, nor shall they grieve. So it mentions other monotheists, as well as Sabians, in that context. Uh, there are also themes concerning the universality of, of divine presence, passages such as, wheresoever you turn, there is his face, God's face, in the midst of, apparently, the outer world around us, presence of, of, of God. There's also uh, worth, it's worth mentioning the, the Sufi tradition of Islamic mysticism, which uh, produces uh, some profound statements of embrace of the other uh, in love, underscoring human unity and the potential for transformation and spiritual uplift. I have here uh, some passages from Ibn al-Arabi, the Andalusian mystic of the 12th and 13th century, uh, a major figure in, in Islamic mysticism. Who uh, saw what his practice is basically an intensification of the outward Islam, the the purification of the inner life, and uh, seeing the face of God everywhere, even in things that appear profane. And so I have quotes here. uh, One one from his Tarjuman al al Ishwaq. It says, my heart has become capable of every form. It is a pasture for gazelles and a convent for Christian monks and a temple for idols and the pilgrims Kaaba and the tables of the Torah and the book of the Quran. I follow the religion of love whatever way love's camels take. That is my religion and my faith. In addition to penning this poetry, he also has a commentary, which he uses to square it, to, to relate it to uh, the larger frame of Islamic orthopraxis and belief. Uh, but uh, some profound statements of solidarity with with the rest of humanity, even with gazelles, with, with, with nature. So we have here divine names on the screen, al-Wasi, al-Wadud, uh, about God's embrace of all things and his affectionate or loving quality. And the, the, these ideas, uh, have, I, we argue, have a, a very strong leavening effect in traditional Islamic culture. In expressions of poetry that are at the core of people's identities and experiences in different parts of the Islamic world. I have here some a couple of pictures, I, three pictures I took in, in Iran at the uh, mausoleums of Hafez and Saadi Shirazi, uh, with some, some themes that have that universalistic quality. Saadi Shirazi's quote here is also to be found at the United Nations in New York. It says, All human beings are members of one frame, since all at first from the same essence came. When time afflicts a limb with pain, the other limbs cannot at rest remain. So, the idea that if one part of humanity is hurt, the others cannot but resonate with that. And Hafez translated here, in the upper right, I hear the voice of every creature and plant, every world and sun and galaxy singing the beloved's name. The beloved here refers particularly to the divine. So. Th- That is a framework that tries to to help us sort out some of the different facets of Islamic experience that relate back to peace. So I've tried to uh, account for both diversity of perspectives and some underlying unities and distinctives in the Islamic experience with respect to peace. Uh, There are uh, further things we will, I'm sure, talk about and and, and can discuss. Uh, In my own teaching on religion uh, and peace building, I discussed with my students when we were looking at various religious traditions how there's a two-way relationship between religion and conflict. On the one hand, we see sometimes religious teachings directly guiding people on how to engage with conflict constructively. On the other hand, we see conflict uh, impacting people, affecting their worldviews, and influencing how they choose to read their, their religious traditions. There's a two-way relationship. And there's a great deal, there are many complex issues, policy issues, historical legacies that we have to contend with when we talk about peace building in our world today. And I articulate some challenges on this particular slide burdens of history, colonial, post colonial experiences of rupture. Uh, you could say that there's, a, in a sense, in, in, in a broken narrative, even. You know, the, We in, in the West have a hard time understanding the impact of a colonial era or of certain policies on the sense of identity and continuity in history, dignity, how that has an impact. But it is still uh, an issue we need to contend with in the world today. Because when conflicts are protracted for too long, when intercultural conflicts fester, the effects aren't so different as when class conflicts fester. Class conflicts fester, we get Marxism. (laughs) Intercultural conflicts, we get fundamentalism of one form or another. There's also political dimensions. We we might even sometimes fall into our own Western sort of fundamentalism at times. Uh, There's a big election issue in Canada right now where a lot of discourse around the burqa. Is this a grave offense to Canadian values or is it a very minor issue? Many, many issues to contend with here, but there are also opportunities. I I hope that thinking about Islam and peace more deeply in in, in a, a more extended way helps us to think about On one hand, yes, a richer inventory of resources that are available for localizing peace in Islamic contexts. What are the reference points that really uh, connect with people's values and identities? But also helps us uh, here in a Western context to move beyond exceptionalism and damaging stereotypes. It can deepen interfaith dialogue and help us work to create new stories about how different cultures, communities in our world can learn together, complement one another, and cooperate better. So thank you for your attention. I, I, I'll turn it over to you now. Uh,
1: um, this is a very broad, uh, uh, extensive uh, talk
0: with
1: different perspectives on the, on the tradition. Um, um, I'd like to you you began your talk with the ways in which you talk about different um, perspectives, how we can look at things, and uh, since you had a quote of uh, uh, the great mystic philosopher Ibn Arabi on the screen there, uh, it made me think about this notion of, he has a notion of Dhul I name, somebody who has two eyes. It's a, it's a state of, when somebody reaches a state of spiritual perfection, you see with two eyes and the two eyes with one eye you see plurality the, the 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 physical manifestations but with the other eye you see unity and that's the other eye you see the internal the batin as opposed to the zahir and those two complementarities going back and forth between the zahir the external and the batin the internal Think is a very interesting way also of thinking about uh, some of these things because you can talk about external peace and then you can talk about internal. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, anyways, I'm going to open this now. First, uh, as Dean Hampton pointed out, we're going to, there are some students who are, uh, uh, for whom this is part of their uh, coursework, they're uh, participating in a colloquium. So I'm going to open it up for uh, students in that, uh, who participate in that colloquium. I understand some of them have have prepared questions, remarks, so we'll just open up. So, yeah.
3: Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, uh, the wonderful readings that you gave us, Professor Funk. Two weeks ago, we had a just incredibly rich discussion in the colloquium um, based on those readings, and one of the things we did was sort of try to distill that conversation down and what we've come up with just to get us going are two questions that my colleagues have prepared and I think we'll do this one at a time. Um, And I think, Mush, is that your question first?
4: The first question that we have is, what is the role of traditions of hermeneutics or developing new hermeneutics in peace building, particularly Islam? Um, what is the role of source work? Who, who reads them and or should read them? Um, and who has the authority to read and access them?
2: Okay. That's a, a rich set of issues. Yeah. And there are those who, who you would ask who would say that only some people are qualified to deal with the sources and to interpret. And there is historically a process where at first Know, informally and then later formally, you know, institutions developed w- which recognized those with greater learning, mastery of traditions, and that had, I think, some some really real advantages for the community as well as, uh, in the contemporary, we we see some some limitations. Uh, you know, the advantages to having very clear lines on who's uh, entitled to interpret. It, uh, it helps to define what's, who, who to listen to and who not to listen to. You know, There is no pope in Islam. There is no supreme authority everyone goes to and recognizes. But yet there are those who are, have been recognized as having greater learning. Uh, at the same time, <clears throat> there has been a lot of, I mean, from, as, as I would hear voices articulating it, there is a lot of dissatisfaction sometimes with, with the inertia of traditional thought and the slowness, to, slowness to engage uh, issues of the time, uh, to to be able to be as independent as people would like of, of political authority in some cases. And then there are also uh, religious traditions such as, a, you know, the principle in Islam that, that seeking ilm or knowledge is the responsibility of every man and woman. So I, I think you know when we talk about these issues of peace building, of uh, finding ways to enrich the dialogue or discussion, I think uh, having many voices contribute to the conversation could be advantageous, whatever the religious tradition we're talking about. And if, if uh, authorities are, are or traditional authority figures are slow to uh, demonstrate nimbleness in thinking about these things, having an educated populace with fresh angles and takes can at the very least encourage those who, who have more extensive training to, to confront the issue. Um, is, is that getting, getting at it? I mean, where you wanted to go with the question? So I think, I think it, it behooves people to see themselves as having the ability to discern, right? Not to be arrogant about it, but to very much be active and engaging. And uh, there is a, you know, I, I have sometimes been in conversation with Mohammed Abu Nimr. He's a, a peace-building practitioner who does trainings uh, in peace-building in, in Islamic contexts in many parts of the world and in Africa the Balkans as well as the Middle East Southeast Asia and he finds that many people feel like they're hungry for knowledge of, of, of resources that are available to them within their own tradition sometimes lack of language skills gets in the way they can't go to the original sources themselves but he finds that people want to engage want to equip themselves and that it, the results are, are empowering
5: Hi, uh, my name is Adil, I'm also a student mm-hmm. in the colloquium. Um, thank you very much for a very, uh, a very very rich talk. Uh, so you give us a lot of uh, interesting frameworks on, on how to go into the Islamic tradition um, and try to find these these toolbox or, or ways of thinking about peace. And also in the chapter that you assigned to us from your own book, you talk a lot about um, the need for a new narrative and how both, uh, so in the context of Islam and the West or Islam versus the West or, however we want to contextualize that. So on both sides we need to uh, have a need for a new narrative and to rethink it. One of the things that we're very curious about in the colloquium is how we assign responsibility for peace building. Um, and uh, put another way, uh, it's uh, whose imperative is it uh, to go about doing this peace building? And to be very explicit about the context of the question, it's in the context of uh, you know, post-colonialism and in the context of these very Asymmetric power relationships, when we talk about those who are oppressors and those who are oppressed, do we expect the same imperative of peace building to be upon those who are oppressed as those who are the oppressors, Uh, broadly but specifically in in sort of the Islamic context?
2: Okay. Uh, That's a a powerful question. Uh, I think, you know, broadly, I think it's worth. (laughs) underscoring the principle that the first to act should always be those who are secure enough that they ought to be able to take some risks. So those who are advantaged, who are privileged, who have greater power, should take the lead and should be called upon to act more justly, to take the first steps toward peace. And <clears throat> I think that, that needs to be affirmed strongly. I think you know, in, in a North American context it's discouraging to see so much fear when, when we ought to be wise enough to delve more deeply into issues uh, to get beyond the superficial representations to find out what's really going wrong going on uh, <coughs> you know, to convey respect to seek to get at root causes. At the same time I think you know, even those who are experiencing uh, Repression or disadvantages, I think it's important to also recognize that they still have agency of some sort. Not the same capacity, but there are still ways of seeking empowerment that are ennobling and can affect change. And that's where the nonviolence paradigm comes in. I think that that is one where we, we see uh, scope for action, scope for enacting a different narrative as if it already existed and calling for the world to pay attention. So I I think that uh, when we totally disavow the capacity for agency, it it gets us nowhere. But I'm not denying that there are not situations of grave oppression in the world where where they demand our attention. But uh, change can start anywhere. And sometimes the most oppressive cases are the, the challenges to the most morally are from those who are oppressed standing up for their rights, but doing it in a way that shows that they're right by not making it easy for us to dismiss them, uh, but by by commanding attention and not distracting from the fundamental injustices they want to direct attention to. And that's where the the nonviolence paradigm, I think, has, has its advantages.
6: Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Reverend Ellen Frith. I am a, an alum of the Divinity School, and I'm an interfaith minister. Um, I served for three and a half years in Peace Corps in Morocco, where I was very much in in Islam. And it was very moving for me to, and very confirming and affirming for me to have this presentation this evening reminded me a lot about what i learned about islam while i was living in it and how it's really formed a lot of my social justice my nonviolence my standing up for my rights as a human being and other people's rights and i had already known what the true meaning of jihad is but to see it as like the the <clears throat> kind of minor and the major uh, was a good distinction Um, I'm part of Greater Boston Interfaith Organization where we were working diligently with the legislature here in Massachusetts to have everybody have their rights protected and their rights enforced. And so I want to thank you very much. I think this is a very important presentation that needs to really be disseminated throughout uh, a nation that's full of trauma right now. You talked about fear. This is also a nation full of trauma. And help people to understand that Islam can be a healing force in this nation of trauma. So I wanna thank you very much. I hope that this presentation will be available uh, to share with some of the religious organizations here, um, uh, especially with GBIO where we, um, you know, with the mosques, and the uh, temples, synagogues, and the churches. Um, I wanna thank you very much. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to just, uh, because there are some other students who are in the colloquium and some of the working group, so I'm first gonna have questions from uh, those people and then we'll open it up to the, to the uh, audience because I think there are people who've studied this material so give them a chance to ask some more questions. So anyone from the graduate students who are in the colloquium, or, or people of the working group, uh, any questions, comments? Yeah.
7: Hello, uh, my name is Melinda Holmes, and I'm a consultant working with the Carter Center, and alumna of the Fletcher School with the working group. Thank you very much for your presentation. I really enjoyed the the metaphor of the binoculars for the interior and exterior. And I believe you're referring to anyone engaging with this material, um, striving to occupy both perspectives. But my question is about those people, very many of us, who, who through our personal life and our identities occupy an interior and an exterior perspective. And I was wondering if those engaged in practice, or in thinking, or in, as adherents to Islam, specifically, or religion generally, um, who occupy that kind of interior and exterior space, I was wondering if through your engagement with practitioners and in this field, if you had any <coughs> advice on how to seek that kind of balance, how to actually go about doing the interior and exterior binocular, binocular view. Okay? Thank you.
2: That's a good question, and I think the way you posed it suggests some possible answers. I think wherever we are standing as an insider, that gives us some real strengths and a sense of affinity, and uh, it it enables us to act out of the core of the tradition as we understand it. I think it's it's helpful to, to try to stretch oneself to be non-defensive when engaging outside views, whether they're from adherence to other religions or from scholars who are purporting to provide a, a secular analysis. By being non-defensive, we can see, see more. We can still interpret it for ourselves. But by being non-defensive, uh, by being willing to engage in dialogue, uh, we can, can deepen ourselves and our understanding of our own tradition through that conversation. Now, if we're standing from the outside looking in at another tradition, whatever that tradition is, and whether it's as a scholar or as an adherent of a different tradition, I think the challenge is one of you know, respect and empathy, to try to uh, imagine oneself inside that tradition, recognizing that one is not, you know, and trying to resonate to see how, how deep claims of that Can be intelligible to us, recognizing that there will always be something elusive, right? And not being arrogant either. Uh, So I think there there are different challenges that are posed in different contexts and relationships, but it's a a really good question for us to be thinking about. Okay. Yeah, we have another question right there. Krister Stendhal um, spoke of what what is it? Um, Holy envy. Holy envy. That's the concept I was looking for. Thank you.
3: I have a question I and, and I'm picking up on the last slide there was something about um, localizing peace mm-hmm. in one of the conversations um, we were having um, some of us were noticing boy it seems with some of this literature on peace building um, there it, it seems to always be something that happens abroad it's not a thing that happens domestically and It would be easy to go down a path and critique, you know, any number of of implied sorts of you know positions there. Um, But I would love to hear what you might, what possibilities you see for some localizing of this idea of peace building, um, particularly domestically. It was actually as I was exchanging a whole flurry of emails with my colleagues here um, that you know my Google News. Brought up a uh, an alert that you know the, a whole bunch of documents from the FBI have just been released, and in them, the the Muslims um, that they were that they were observing, you know, they were all referred to with ethnic slurs, and so uh, peace building needs to happen right here as well, and not just abroad. And I'm wondering how your research, your experience, your questions, and your your frame of inquiry and research might. Inform those sorts of local contexts as well.
2: Okay. Well, I think it's relevant. I mean, there's uh, a lot of defamation that occurs every day, and much of it in cyberspace, uh, but some of it in real life. Uh, hate crimes, uh, vandalism. I think those are are very real issues, and, and there's a strong need for localized interfaith groups that that engage these issues together, that create inclusive spaces, that promote understanding, uh, as well as multi-faith and particular faith-based social service initiatives and advocacy initiatives, I think all can contribute to that. Uh, But certainly I I would not want the work I'm doing to suggest that the the work at home isn't important, (laughs) not not, not by any any, any means. So thank you for... Putting
1: that in front yeah. of us. And I just want to add a comment onto mm-hmm. that, because when you look at the, um, uh, if you talk about the current political scene, um, especially with the elections and the kind of othering that takes place of Muslims, um, you know, in the United States by certain sort of politicians, it's not widespread, but you do have this very public othering of Muslims. Um, in a way, it's uh, uh, it's a call to, in a way, call to violence. You know, it's it's sort of it's the breeding ground, and so part of the part of the issue. You know, and I so appreciate you know this idea of having that we shouldn't be talking about. Well, you know, peace building abroad. What about peace building within the nation? Because that peace building within the nation and this kind of. Uh, uh, um, I would think the othering that takes place of religious communities, and this time, this time around it's the Muslims, at one point it was Catholics, and so on and so forth. But it's so important to counter that, uh, uh, because it, in a way it's, uh, uh, and it's an issue I think also in Canada to a certain extent. Um, the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. the Harper, makes all kinds of statements. He's
2: behind in the polls,
1: so yeah, <laughs> yeah which is good. And but that um, was one of the impetuses to yeah, yeah,
2: press yeah. those buttons.
1: Yeah, and um, uh, but I think in Europe and so on in Western societies generally, when you look at you know the the push against you know the other, the other doesn't belong here, and even with the refugees, this this very tragic crisis, all these people fleeing to Europe, but there's all, rather than showing compassion, there's this othering that is taking place. So I think that's a very important sort of part of peace, because usually when we think about peace building, we think about wars and people going into conflict. But I think this is another conflict zone. We're not seeing it as a war, but it is a battle. It's a battle for defining who's Ameri- what, what is America and who's American. And we need peace building there. So, uh, any other questions? Yeah, from the group, yeah.
5: Sorry, one, one more question, sorry. Uh, so, uh, again, thank you for the presentation. Uh, so, I'm playing out the situation in my mind where some bigwig in the Department of State or the Department of Homeland Security listens to this lecture and says, great, Oh, this is super cool, we just need to get this lecture translated and distributed across the world to, uh, to thousands of Muslim communities across the world and you know, this, is gonna, this is gonna help our national security interests. And so the question that I have is, um, is that often whenever we talk about Islam particularly Islam in peace, it's put into a paradigm of national security. Uh, and uh, it's a problematic paradigm. Uh, and I, I, my question to you is, how do we go about talking about Islam and peace without falling into these traps of national security? Like, oh, well, we want Muslims to be peaceful so that they can help our national security. Or what, so, so that's the question. How do we go about talking about Islam and peace without falling into the trap of national security?
2: Mm-hmm. Good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you know, we, we do have to continue to be Critical citizens of, of the polity in which we live. And to recognize that, that I, I mean, as valuable as I think these themes are, it, if we continue to stoke the fire and <laughs> engaging in, in military interventions here or there, <laughs> other places, that we're gonna we're not gonna get that far. <laughs> so definitely we need to be thinking about Larger questions of, of how, how to engage conflict ourselves. Uh, questions about what we're really even paying attention to in the media and coverage. And following up on your first question, you said you know, whose responsibility is it to change narratives and is it ever the responsibility of the weak or always the powerful? Sometimes when the weak are trying to change the narrative, we don't pay any attention. You know, in, in, in Kosovo, in the 1990s, Ibrahim Rogova had a parallel government for years, how much media coverage did it get? You know, a nonviolent movement for Albanian rights and ignored up until the time KLA, KLA takes up arms, then people paid attention. Didn't pay attention for years of this inspiring struggle. Uh, did, we pay, did we pay much attention to the first Intifada or to, uh, do we notice people like Abdul Sattar Edhi in Pakistan, you know, a great humanitarian who comes from a more uh, oppressed social group who provides social services and uh, uplifts the poor, reaches out to the outcast. I think if we're, not, if we're only looking at this how, we, how it's instrumental to us, if we're not paying attention also to be inspired by what we can learn, then, then it's a pretty shallow approach. And there are those who would do that, <laughs> who would see this as instrumental, but I think that uh, if we're clear about our own motivation, there are ways, you know, wherever we're entering to this, we, we, can, we can learn something of, of, of value from it and be challenged constructively while we'll still being aware and critical citizens.
1: OK. Uh, thank you. So yeah, we'll open up. Yeah. To, we've got a couple of people at the back.
4: Uh, my name is Ahmed Ali. Actually, I'm, I have a question. To about how we can prepare um, uh, peace builders can can deal with Islam, um, understand the Islamic context, and dealing with Muslim and really I I mean here Islamic groups in conflict areas. How we can transfer this from academia to be part from reality, uh, to be part from humanitarian work because many humanitarian organizations they are dealing with facing uh, challenging, and especially Muslim countries, how we can deal with armed groups. How we can use the Islam to from, mm-hmm. to be like a bridge between even the international community or international organization and those groups, as well as how we can protect um, people in need, like IDBs uh, under the Islamic law through making this kind of bridge between international humanitarian law and Islamic humanitarian law or Islamic humanitarian rules in, in, in Islam. How we can do that, or how, we, how we can prepare that and understand as well um, the local context and how the tradition norms affect our views for the Islam because the Islam is not one thing as, as, as well as Sharia is relative from Indonesia to Morocco. It is, there is different version of Islam in, in, in different countries. Thank you.
2: I, I mentioned uh, Muhammad Abu Nimr a little earlier. Uh, he's also worked with uh, Aisha Karayefci, a, a Turkish scholar, uh, doing a lot of training work. Where the, Again, I, they have both encountered a lot of, of, of hunger for resources in different places for, uh, on Islamic peace teachings. They're, they've documented in some of their own studies uh, many examples of local movements for development, for humanitarian relief where the activities people were engaging in through local leadership, through elders, through some activist members of society, through women's groups, uh, were activities that directly touched upon questions of how we engage conflict. Uh, They were were instinctively drawing upon Islamic values and precepts and articulating them in what they were doing, even if they weren't defining themselves as Islamic organizations. But they were (coughs) interested, still hungry for for, for resources they could use to more uh, effectively advocate for the human- humanitarian and development work they were doing and for constructive responses to conflict. Uh, uh, Abu Nimr is also he's doing a study on you know, how Egyptian schools teach about Islamic values of forgiveness, and he's try- trying to understand you know, how, how these things are contrib- uh, explored within a curriculum. I think that that also serves as a challenge of, in other contexts to think about how <coughs> we tap deeper values in relation to these these matters of, of uh, social concern, yeah. So, because I, I, I think there's actually a lot lot of scope for it for people who are, are, are you know dynamically engaged, and, and um, there there is, is value in the sort of process that the RPP initiative is initiating here and inviting us all to to this conversation. And I think this is also going back to Re's question. so this is a good example of vocalizing peace <laughs> mm-hmm. our own context, diverse, engage with one another mm-hmm. yep.
1: Okay, I think we have a question at the back there, and then we'll come to
8: you. Uh, thanks uh, jed Schwartz uh, from Somerville um, it, it seems to me that what you what you have is uh, a progression from the greater jihad uh, down to the uh, lesser jihad and that represents a kind of uh, when you when you get to the lesser jihad that represents a kind of failure of the greater jihad which is sort of looking a, a, about you peacefully and looking within to see what's wrong with the situation and uh, that's uh uh and and I, I am coming from a sociological perspective rather than a theological perspective so that I would hope that uh the the issues that are causing the contention uh would get uh focused on by the uh uh the the, the global and and the islamic communities and uh particularly the tensions and, and antagonisms that have been generated between the uh, sunni and shia uh, communities, um, uh, because uh, 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 I think that unless, unless, unless th- th- that it's through confronting the issues that are in contention that a new narrative will be developed. And I would suggest to you that the old narratives uh, are are not working. Uh, that I mean, it's, it's one. I mean, I, I mean, it's great to see. But it's, there's some of the phrase but the people say peace, peace, peace. But there is no peace.
2: Yeah. That, that's a, a valid point. You know, and th- there are um, some Muslim thinkers and activists who are trying to uh, practice what you would call ijtihad you know, which is uh, basically. <clears throat> Uh, striving to arrive at insight in how to deal with situations that are not fully dealt with by past teachings and understandings of uh, Islamic norms and principles. And one area that is, is receiving more of that focus in the contemporary context it has to do with questions of, of uh, you know, the role of, say, civil society and social betterment. There's a long history of, of uh, of mosques and and associations of people in in meeting social needs, but it isn't fully, um, there are are voices who say that there needs to be more thinking about the role of that sector, how it can be enlarged, uh, how how the space between the, the more inward greater jihad and the outward political military context can be filled with active citizen voices that are engaged with the problems of the day more more fully and uh, <clears throat> yes yeah, so that's part of the current conversation
1: okay so we have a couple of questions back there we one up here and then we'll and then we'll come back there yeah.
9: i apologize if i sound too instrumental um but i think if one gets at underlying causes behind um, behind this, there are wars that seem to be unending in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, now Yemen, etc um, and I think what you do is you're providing a valuable tool um, for peace building. but the question is how one uses that tool uh, to get at these conflicts because the actors in these conflicts, many of them at least on face values seem to be religiously motivated, Shia fighting against Sunni, etc. So how do you see, I mean, from a pragmatic viewpoint, how do you see your interpretation of Islam, what you're providing as being used as a tool to try to achieve some type of reconciliation of these conflicts?
2: Well, I mean, I believe that these perspectives within Islam are, are vitally important is, uh, when engaging issues that do indeed have a, a religious dimension. And religion's not the only factor. And even when we talk about sectarianism, it's part of its religious ideas, part of its sense of communal identity that's almost ethnic and very much a, a power struggle that has its uh, historical roots, yes, but also is part of the recent instrumentalization of actors seeking. Um, power over, over other groups. So, um, <clears throat> it's complex. I wouldn't want to reduce it just to that religious dimension, but I think, you know, if if, uh, if we enter conflicts such as these, merely, on, only with, with, with what are seen as, as Western understandings and ways of negotiating understanding what's at stake, uh, in many cases, there is a, a failure to, uh, of an opportunity to elicit what the conflict means to people who are living with that situation, what peace means. Uh, there is, in, in much of the Islamic world, a deep distrust for many things Western, not all things, but many things Western. Uh, and there's a reason for that. It has to do with history and politics and colonialism. and you know, Whose peace are you pushing? Is it our peace or, or yours? Yeah. Uh, So, exploring these perspectives helps us to enter into, I think, a a deeper conversation about how we can envision more collaborative ways of getting out of the mess that that, uh, we are, in part, responsible for for in North America from our own uh, national engagement with with these issues in the Middle East and other areas. but also in ways in which we can be of greater use and assistance. I do think there is value there.:
1: Okay, and I wanted to add, I mean, my own sort of perspective on this was <coughs> that, uh, as you pointed out, it's not religion doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, the lived realities of people's lives actually shape the way in which they think about religion. Uh, so the instrumentalization of religion, is a product of a set of social, political, economic situ- uh, situations in which religion is embedded. So I would, since we, if we talk about new narratives, how do we change the narrative? I think one narrative that we need to seriously look at is the narrative of nationalism. Because the narrative of nationalism, from my perspective, has created more harm, more wars, more violence, than you know, you know, just religious narratives, right? So you can think about why is it that these sectarian conflicts have emerged now? There have been decades where Shia and Sunni lived side by side in peace. What is it about the current situation that has led to this? And it's very clear it's nationalism has imploded in the Middle East. You see the breakup of nation states. ISIS is trying to create a new kind of political entity that goes beyond the nation state. You have uh, existing nation states that are just failing to provide for their citizens. So I think we need to keep all of that in mind. So when we are talking about new narratives of building peace, uh, we have to also uh, look at the, the issues. How do we move beyond current sort of political structures And what kind of new political structures can we think about that are going to be more inclusive uh, and less exclusive? So uh, I think we've got a couple of questions at the back there. Yeah.
10: Yes, most of my experience is in the secular field, not the religious field. But you mentioned Marxism. you mentioned you know, religion being a philosophy, Islam in particular, and religion in general being a philosophy of peace. Marxism, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need, a philosophy of economics. Marxism, we have come to the realization, is against mankind. As good as it sounds, it's against mankind. And I'm wondering if the concept of religion being a philosophy of peace is also against mankind um, and is just never going to work. Um, that's my first question, and my second question is that somebody who, you, who has knowledge of um, Islam and Muslim, what do you say to the president of Syria or the head of um, ISIS to get them to stop violence against their own people?
2: Okay. I, 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 didn't, I would not want to be seen as invalidating Marx's valid, insights into oppression, the economic basis of it, inequality, injustices of capitalism. I guess what, what I meant was when, when inequality, class-based, festers too long, you start to get I an insurgency inspired by this movement, and you might even get something as extreme and as distant, maybe from that original vision, as say the, the shining path in, in Peru or something like that, coming out of the despair at the oppressive situation, uh, there there is value in the critique that you're um, affirming. <clears throat> what do we say to Hafez, to Bashar al-Assad? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it it's deeply tragic situation. I mean, it, I. I uh, I left Syria, and, and then years later, as Facebook came online, I g- developed some Facebook friends from different communities within Syria, and it was uh, a situation of, of real d- deep sadness to see people talking completely past each other, as if, if they were inhabiting different realities. Those in the, the Alawi community, which is uh, acting out of historical oppression, but current dominance, uh, in great fear, and members of the the Sunni community and others who wanted democratic change, who are profoundly disillusioned with a sectarian state that had, has been very corrupt and excluding them from uh, <coughs> full participation, livelihood. You know. But to see the the, the 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 way in which it has unfolded is, is is worse than I could have possibly imagined. What to say to Bashar Assad that will persuade him, or to others? I, I, I think that the. Clearly, what's, working, what's happening now is not working, with every major power that has an interest intervening it cross-purposes to the other. Uh, every, each side fueling the conflict with, with, with more weapons, the government, others. Uh, I think the solution for years, the only, only plausible one would be coherent external involvement that tries to put less fuel on the fire, you know pressure some form of transition of government coherently we, we're not we're not close to that at all unfortunately that involves iran and russia and gulf states and <laughs> turkey the us there has to be coherence incoherent is just shredding the country so uh, i don't have a simple solution other than to point out the obvious that it's a depressive situation where you know, which is intolerable you know when the, the news came out of the you know, the a um, photographer who was uh, photographing the, the, the dead, starved prisoners in the jails of the country, appalling situations that, that deserve everyone's condemnation. But the existing international response is, is completely incoherent. And we need thinking that <coughs> fosters solutions, not only more bloodshed.
1: Okay, so we have, uh, I think I will have to take two more questions. So yeah.
4: Hello, my name is Arash Qasim, I'm from Iran, UMass Law and Harvard Extension. My question to you is, what is justice in Islam? And when we want to make peace, what is our approach? Are we going from a consequential, in particular utilitarian school of thinking? A consequi- excuse me? Uh, consequential, like utilitarian school of thinking, mm-hmm. or um, categorical school of thinking?
2: Okay, so, uh, <coughs> So the the question is, should we be thinking in terms of consequential or categorical ethics? All right, interesting philosophical questions. I think uh, religion brings out the called the ontological sort of approach uh, more so than consequentialist uh, or pragmatic. I I personally. I think it's important to, to have clear you know, categorical principles, but also to have an open mind in seeing what the consequences of trying to live by that, the principle, those principles as we understand them, what sort of consequences are generated. <laughs> and that's where, where my inner pragmatist comes out. We, we have I, I like Gandhi's uh, idea of the practical idealist, who has a moral theory who tries to live it, who enacts experiments with truth, and then sees what happens, <clears throat> takes that into account, and then reassesses his own understanding of those guiding moral principles. So I think we, maybe it's a dialectic, where we <laughs> embrace both sides. Is that, is that responding to the issue yeah. All Right.
1: Okay, so...
3: Hi, I'm Melissa. I'm in the colloquium. And so you started your presentation saying that you have an academic and practical different perspectives to your work, and so I have a practical question for you, which is, when I go into many parts of, I'm from Georgia, and I will go to where there are Muslims in a very minority, where, as you were talking about, they are extremely othered, people tell me that they're coming to get them, there's lots of fear there, there's lots of national security talk there, and in that situation, do you have any thoughts about how we can practically talk about peacemaking?
2: You said in Georgia?
3: Yeah. Okay, gotcha. But I imagine there are similar conversations having all over the U.S.
2: In general, wherever you are, whatever part of the world you're in, majority communities often have you know, no idea what it feels like to be a member of a minority community. Uh, uh, no understanding of what it means to be, be othered because from a dominant standpoint, we, we don't ask the questions, maybe we don't have at least the trusted friendships to get the the honest answer. Uh, I think it's critical to be involved in dialogue. Universities are are great places for for more honest and sincere discussions to happen, where we really come to know one another's lived realities. Uh, But generally, in in North America, the majority culture, people have have little uh, understanding of how alienated how alienating it can be to be the other at times like these, and then there are things we can do. We, we can foster conversations like this as a start.
1: All right. Okay. We've got one question at the back there. There. Yeah. The, in the, in the blue. And then, uh, and then we've got one.
7: Hi, uh, thank you for the talk. My question is also about the feasibility of the tools that you're providing to engage in peacemaking with Islam. Um, Because of the way we engage in peacemaking is primarily voiced through uh, the political arena and the media, how would you encourage policymakers to integrate methods that you advocate for in your peacemaking tools um, to integrate such that it respects Islamic cultures and values? also cognizant of the fact that Islam varies so much across different countries and cultural aspects as well.
2: All right. A lot could be said about that. One, one uh, example that comes to my mind has to do with the, the years immediately after uh, September 11, 2001 in the area of public diplomacy. Uh, I, I know individuals who were invited to consult uh, with Charlotte Beers on public diplomacy after uh, uh, this, this is, you know, after the Afghanistan war and Iraq wars, and some were, we're un- underway. But the, <clears throat> the, the 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 conventional wisdom was, if she can sell Uncle Ben's rice, she can sell America. <laughs> and uh, this idea of using public diplomacy as like advertising, a brand, doesn't work. Uh, people have all sorts of information about America. And they choose their own channels. They, 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 they follow the NBA. They, <laughs> they are interested in, in pop culture and, and, and songs, and some more than others, but all sorts of information. They, they also pay attention to politics and what the country does. Uh, public diplomacy could be, though, a channel for two-way communication, where you, you listen as well as share, foster conversation, regenerate input, and, and pay attention to how people experience your foreign policy, for example. Uh, what the the, the critical issues are for people in in a region or country. So I think that's one way of trying to to open up the conversation for for genuine exchange of of views. Uh, I I think that uh, it 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 behooves the country to have professionals in places like the State Department who reflect diverse experiences of the country and the world, who can bring tools to bear in understanding <coughs> issues from multiple perspectives. And those are just two, two examples, again, in the outward facing side of, of policy, but uh, also in, in domestic policy, there, there are needs to, to you know, foster inclusion.
1: Yeah, and we've got one last comment here.
7: Hi, I just wanted to offer a forthcoming resource that speaks to the practicality issue and relieve a little of the pressure on our speaker to answer these big questions. Um, the United States Institute of Peace and Salaam Institute have commissioned a, a, a new iteration in their series of the Peace Builders Toolkit, which USIP publishes on religious peace building. And I'm part of a team including um, Mohammed Nibir and Isa has have, are c- contributing to it. Um, that's developing that. It'll be a series of four action guides. So I believe it will be published in early next year. And I, you know, encourage you to keep your eyes open for that. Well, thank you.
1: All right. Okay. So thank you very much for all these questions and comments and pointing out to resources. Um, I want to. Um, and from my own perspective, a resource that has, I think, that is underutilized uh, uh, in peace in peace building. Uh, uh, I think in Muslim context, but I think also non-Muslim context, are uh, the arts. Mm-hmm. I think the sound arts, the visual arts, the literary arts are very powerful, tools, And they've been traditionally, many of these societies, uh, traditions like poetry, for example, have been used to build bridges. And we have lots of examples from different parts of the world. And uh, so I think that that's another resource that we need to be bringing into this whole uh, uh, discussion. Um, in any case, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to thank our speaker again for his, uh, uh, um, his presentation, but also, Uh, the energy and the engagement with which he responded to these various questions that were thrown to him. Um, And I'll now ask uh, Dean Hampton to make some closing remarks.
0: Yes, I'd like to add my voice to those things. Thank you so much for joining us, for um, a, a very, I think, deeply informed and thoughtful, conceptually rich, um, honest, uh, careful, r- realistic, um, complicated, and engaged uh, presentation, we're really grateful mm-hmm. for um, helping us understand these things better. So thank you very much. Let's get them a real thank you professor Asani, for moderating and, and guiding us and thanks to everyone who uh, played a part in, in organizing and supplying food and reading presenting questions and um, it was really a, a great discourse so thank you um, we very much welcome you to join us for future sessions in this monthly series. Um, we're building up uh, momentum and um, the kind of uh, informed discussions that I think that we, we want to try and model. So please share this invitation with colleagues and friends um, uh, going forward. Our next uh, colloquium session will be on November nineteenth, And it's, it will be entitled Bridging the Religious Divide Transforming Conflict When Emotions Are At Play. It will be co-sponsored by the Harvard International Negotiation Program and the Program on Negotiation at the Harvard Law School. So we're in for a very dynamic session led by one of our RPP Working Group faculty members and great supporters, Professor Daniel Shapiro, who is founder and director of the Harvard International Negotiation Program, associate professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and affiliate faculty at the Programme of Negotiation. So Professor Shapiro has pioneered cutting-edge research and practical interventions to improve the way people negotiate and resolve conflict. And he consults globally for government leaders and ethno-political groups in conflict. And we know uh, will have many valuable and useful insights to share with us, so please come. The session will also feature a response by the Reverend Septimi Akawa of Indonesia, who's a visiting professor and research associate within the Women's Studies and Religion program here at Harvard Divinity School. So it's a session not to be missed. So we encourage you to join us um, and to RSVP early. Um, it'll be standing room only. Um, so we've also set up a new mailing list. Uh, so if you have not yet filled out your online mailing list form, even if you've received emails from us in the past, because we're such assiduous communicators, Please be sure to visit our our RPP website and fill out the online form if you wish to receive uh, future announcements. And finally, the RPP as a fledgling program would benefit greatly from your support for its present and future activities. If you'd like to help us bring the initiative's aspirations into reality, um, uh, be a regular volunteer or support our programs and their growth, Please be in touch with RPP's research associate, um, activist, and organizer extraordinaire, uh, Liz Lee Hood, whose contact information you can find on the website. So please do support us in every way you can. And thanks again to Liz for all her work in uh, this evening's session and for much else that she does uh, for this initiative. So we know that m- many of you are eager to meet others interested in these issues and make connections. So at the end of every colloquium, after the formal program, we invite everyone to stay for an informal reception and desserts um, until 9 p.m. Um, or 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. No, 9 p.m. <laughs> um, so you're most welcome to join us for that, if you wish. So there will be refreshments and some desserts and lots of people to talk with. So do please stay. And once again, thank you so much for our present, uh, um, Professor Fan. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh. I
1: wanted to also um, uh, thank Dean Hampton for hosting us here. And also, uh, watch out for our next next lecture in the series, uh, Islam and the Practice of Peace. Thank Thank you.